Amen. How do you end a story? How do you end a story? Any of you guys that have ever written songs or written movies or, I don't know if you guys have written movies, but written plays, John has written plays, uh, written poetry, written anything, really. One of the hardest questions you have to answer is, how do I end it? Every week I write a sermon. <laughs> and I have to, one of the hardest things I have to think about is, how am I going to end this sermon? You know, it's one thing to take off, like if you're thinking about an airplane, it's one thing to get in the air. Oh, good job, you got in the air. Uh, I went flying with one of our brothers here from the church, Kenny McGowan. He let me fly while we were up in the air, but as soon as it came to the landing part, he said, okay, I'm going to take over. And I said, thank you, because um, I don't know how to land an airplane. Okay, how you land a story, how you land anything, how you conclude something, it matters. And in some ways, it matters even more than how you start it. You know, when you, when you end something, you have to tie together all the loose ends. You know, someone that writes a movie or something, you, you know, how you end it matters. Um, will, will it, will it um, conclude all of the, the interesting anecdotes and things and, and, and side paths and characters that came up? And how you end a story says a lot about what you intended the story to accomplish, right? How you end a story says a lot about what you intended the story to to accomplish. So for example, if you are writing a movie and you want that movie to set up for a sequel, what do you do? You leave it open-ended, right? You leave some loose ends. You leave this sense of sort of, uh, it didn't quite, you know, the bad guy came back at the last minute and then it goes black. Oh, I thought the bad guy was dead, you know? So it's supposed to create this sense of, of next, right? Or if you want to create a happily ever after sort of story, then everything resolves Guy gets the girl, bad guy dies, um, everything's great, right? That's, that's sort of the happily ever ending story. And there's another kind of story, this is often in documentaries, these are the kind of stories that are supposed to push you to do something. So like you're watching a documentary about, you know, global warming, and it's like at the end it gets really serious and you see the polar bear swimming through the, the ice with no, or with the water with no ice, and it says, what will you do? Will you buy a smart car or will you keep driving your truck? It's up to you. You decide. You want to kill the planet or not, right? And so the point of the documentary is to get you to do something, right? Well, there's lots of different ways to end things. And the way that you end things has to do with the, way, uh, the, the, the reason for writing in the first place. So that leads me to our question, why does Mark end the way he does? And maybe a better question, how does Mark end his book? Isn't that an intriguing question? Aren't you excited to find out? Aren't you interested? I hope so. Um, how does Mark end his gospel? Why does he end the way he does? Now, I need to address an elephant in the room. Um, you may not have seen it yet, but if you've carefully looked or if you've pre-readed the text, pre-read pre the text uh, this week, you will notice something interesting about Mark's ending. Maybe you're saying, Sam, why, what's, why is it hard to ask the question, how did Mark end? Can't we just read it? Well, interestingly, look at your Bibles. If you have an ESV or an NASB translation, I don't know if I don't know what NA, I don't know what NIV does. I don't know what King James or New King James does. But if you have one of the newer translations, you'll notice these little brackets at verse nine, all the way to the end of the book of Mark, that say above them. If you have a footnote, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include. Have you ever noticed that before? Is this the first time any, how many of you guys, the first time you've ever seen that? It's okay. Just, yeah, no one wants to admit it. You're like, I've read Mark thousands of times. No, I know. Okay, so this, this, this is interesting. So the question now becomes, well, where is the book of Mark? Because my footnote here is telling me that perhaps the book ends in verse 8. 
But then if I actually keep reading, it looks like there's a whole lot more there. So I need to speak to this quickly, and I want to do it now before we sort of get lost in what I think is the the appropriate ending of Mark, um, so that you guys understand kind of what that means. What does it mean, oldest manuscripts? Well, you may not realize this, but we didn't have printers in the first century. Okay, so how would the Bible get copied? Well, it would exactly that. Scribes would handwrite copies. And we have thousands, really, of manuscripts of the original texts in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And um, the longer, really, that, that we live on this earth, the more manuscripts we continue to find. There was a, a pretty giant amount of them found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which was, it was just huge. We found some, found some very old manuscripts. And what happened is, we started to realize as we found older manuscripts uh, that the last part of Mark is not in the oldest manuscripts. Isn't that interesting? It's not in the oldest manuscripts. So what does that mean, and, and what are we supposed to do with that? It, it looks to, to most scholars that somebody decided they didn't like the ending of Mark in verse 8. <laughs> okay? They didn't like the end, and, and so because they didn't like the end, they said, we should probably help Mark out and they made another one, okay? Um, some of you guys might be freaking out right now, like, what, you're telling me the Bible isn't the Bible? What, what do I do with this? Just hold on, calm down, okay? Um, here's the thing. The ending of Mark in verse eight, as we'll see, is very strange. It ends on a very strange note, um, not a note of triumph, not a note of experience, a note of fear, and a note of almost what seems like kind of failure. It says the women go away and they didn't tell anybody. That's how it ends, how strange. So. There's a lot of theories about why Mark might have ended that way. One of them is, well, maybe he ran out of ink <laughs> or paper. You remember Monty Python, Quest of the Grail, where it's, he's like writing and then all of a sudden it's, uh, and he reads. Any of you that haven't seen that don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Maybe Mark's source, Peter, was um, martyred before Mark finished the book. So maybe he just finished right there. Well, I don't think so. Mark wrote this 20, 30 years after. I think he could have probably pieced together a, a good account, right? Um, so, so what happened? Maybe it was lost. That'd be a good Indiana Jones movie, wouldn't it? Um, finding sort of the lost ending of the book. So maybe that's it. Who knows? We don't know. Uh, here's the thing. Because people have felt like it wasn't the best ending, scribes or scholars early, probably early in the first couple hundred years, decided to take it upon themselves to write their own ending and insert it. Uh, that's not really a good idea, okay? Now, I, I fully admit, I, I'm showing my cards here on my position. Some, some of you guys might go, well, in the King James Bible, it, there's no note there. Okay, well, when the King James Bible was written, we didn't have as old of manuscripts, okay? We didn't have as old of manuscripts. So, quickly, does this change, maybe this is the question you should be asking, does this change the reliability of Scripture? No. Does, the, no. does this make me... Should this make me question that the Bible I'm reading is really the Bible? I would say no, and I would say that the fact that your Bible should tell you that is actually should give you more confidence to know that the Bible you're reading is the Bible. Here's what it tells you. For one, it tells you that the scholars that are translating the Bible, do you speak Greek? No, you don't. So the, the, you're trusting scholars to, to translate Greek for you. Um, someone in there might be like, oh, I speak Greek. Good for you, okay? Um, I, I use the internet, okay? Um, the, the translators that are, that are taking Greek and they're turning it into English, this means that they're not trying to hide anything. It, the fact that they put that footnote there means that the scholars that, that have translated your Bible have the utmost care and, and desire for the validity and authority of Scripture. They want to say, what was Mark's real ending? 
But they also didn't take it out. They left it there for you to decide. The other thing I'll say, and this should give us great confidence in the Bible because it means that we have old enough manuscripts to filter out later editions. There were many later editions to the Bible. There were these pseudepigraphal books written um, by who knows who, and and instead they were called the Gospel of Thomas or the the Gospel of of Judas or whatever. None of them were written by these original authors. We have the original, we have such old manuscripts that date so far back that we can get rid of anything that is not actually Bible, and that's kind of what happened here. Now, what do we do with this kind of strange end that Mark puts on here? I was going to read it. I just don't know that I have the time to read through it. You can read it on your own, but let me tell you what it says. It says everything that the rest of the Bible says. It doesn't say anything new. It doesn't add doctrine or theology. It basically is some scribe deciding he was going to take things from the other gospels and finish Mark's gospel for him the way that he thought he should. So it doesn't really add anything to the gospels. There is some strange stuff in there that's meant to um, kind of allude to the book of Acts, drinking poison, playing with snakes, things like that. Um, It's not playing with snakes, uh, but some people in the South decided that that verse means they should play with snakes. Have you seen this, this thing? Uh, came from that. So when you add to the Bible, people end up playing with snakes, okay? That's what happens when you add to the Bible. Some of you are like, what are you talking about? Um, there's a verse in there that says you'll be able to tread on serpents, and so some, some people that are missing teeth in the South decided to pick up, make it part of their church service. So I have a cobra back here, actually, in the back, if you guys want to play with it. I'm feeling a little weird today. I'm sorry. Okay. Anyways, It's not adding, it's not detracting, but here's what I think it is doing. I think it's actually cloaking for us the beautiful ending that Mark intended for us to look at, which is verse eight. I think Mark ended at verse eight. I think Mark meant to end at verse eight. That's my position. We can argue about it later. Um, You can study it on your own. I'm not out on a limb on this, okay? Um, I think Mark ends at verse eight. So we're going to study through verse eight. Sound good? How did Mark end, and why did he end the way that he did? Let's get into it. We left off last week in verse 40. Let me get you up to speed. If you remember, Jesus, last week, we saw um, depicted very um, carefully by Mark, was crucified on the Roman cross. We saw his... um, prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane leading up to his arrest. We saw Peter's denial. We saw Jesus led away to his arraignment in the middle of the night in the house of the high priest Caiaphas where he was illegally tried and found um, to be guilty, though he was obviously innocent. In the morning, they led Jesus to um, the governor of uh, Judea, Pilate, the Roman governor, where he was tried once again. Pilate found no guilt in him, but he chose to leave it up to the people, and the people systematically rejected Jesus, shouting out, crucify him, give us Barabbas. So after Jesus, already having been beaten profusely by the temple guards, is now handed over to a number of Roman uh, executioners who were very good at what they did, and they scourged Jesus with this whip that was meant to tear the flesh from his body He then had Simon carried his cross or the top piece of the cross to Golgotha, the place of the skull, where Jesus was mocked again and then lifted up on the cross where he spent six hours enduring the worst of man's wrath and the worst of God's wrath, three hours in the light with the mocking and the worst of man, three hours in the dark, God the Father turning his back on the Son, enduring the wrath of the God, compressed into three hours, where Jesus, of his own will, decided that it was finished and gave up his life 
breathing his last. After crying out to the Father, I commend my spirit to you. He says it is finished. He breathes his last. This is where we leave off. And we pick up in verse 40. Now Mark wants us to notice who is present at the scene. There are particular people that are of importance And these particular people have not been mentioned much in the book of Mark, and all of a sudden they become central features. These people are the women that were the disciples of Jesus. Verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were, note them, Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph, And thirdly, Salome. Verse 41, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, take note of which women are here. Mark, who is not prone to giving a lot of detail, gives a lot of detail here. He wants us to know which women were present and he doesn't want them to get confused. He gives a lot of detail about who these women were. Why? Because when this was written, these women were still alive. These women were credible, living eyewitnesses. Mark expects that if someone is skeptical, they can go interview, like Luke did, they can go interview these women and get their firsthand accounts. So we have Mary Magdalene, who's included in all four Gospels, because she's the chief and primary witness. We have Mary, the mother of Jesus, who has now had other children at this point, Joseph, and James the Younger, who... um, Yeah, wrote the book of of James. And we have Salome. You might remember Salome. She's the mother of the sons of thunder. Yes, the same mother who came up to Jesus asking if her sons could have these places of authority, right? So Salome, like a good mom, is always trying to get her boys, um, you know, to get the chief seats. Uh, So these three women whom we're familiar with um, are put into the narrative. And what Mark is doing is he's setting up the next scene. He's transitioning from the crucifixion to the scene of the resurrection, which will be his last and final scene in his narrative. I love the irony of the fact that the women are present, don't you? Because who isn't present? The disciples. Other than John, we know that John the apostle was present, but the other 10, Judas, of course, is betrayed and is off to take his own life. The other 10 are nowhere to be seen, and yet here are the women being faithful. This is such an irony. The upside-down kingdom of Jesus is that often the people you wouldn't expect to be there are there. We have the centurion, this pagan guard who's declaring the lordship of Christ. As we'll see, Joseph, a Sanhedrin member, is caring for the body of Christ, and here are the women still faithful watching on. The commentator, James Edwards, he says, not chosen disciples, of whom we have heard much, but heretofore unmentioned women remain to the bitter end. True, they were watching from a distance, but even distance is better than absence. The women are here. Now, I I just, I want to make a point here, and that is oftentimes it is men who are the first through the wall, right? Oftentimes it is men who are the first to, to run into the fire, first to sign up, but Also, oftentimes, it is women who are the last to stay, the last to wait and pray, mothers who have been praying for their kids to come to know Jesus for years and years. Aren't you thankful for the women in the body of Christ that are continuing to be faithful? You know how many churches in this town are down to 10 or 20 people? Most of them are women still faithfully gathering, still faithfully praying that God would bring revival. I'm thankful for these women. Now, we need to note a few things about 
what would happen with the body of a cruci- after a crucifixion. I need you to understand the history a little bit here. Let me read a note from one commentator regarding what would happen to the body after crucifixion. He says, it was Roman custom to allow crucified criminals to hang on crosses until they decayed as a warning to would-be miscreants or rebellious slaves. So as we talked about last week, the cross was this torture apparatus. It was a way for Rome to strike fear into anyone who would um, try to uh, overthrow Caesar or be an enemy of Caesar. So they would leave the bodies up as long as possible until the crows were picking at their eyes, until their bodies were becoming, uh, beginning to break down. They would leave them up forever, as long as they, they could at least. However, if requested, he says... Their corpses might be handed over to relatives or friends for a proper burial. The Jews, on the other hand, considered burial of the dead, including even the dead of their enemies, a ritual piety. According to Deuteronomy 21:23, a criminal executed for a capital offense, usually by stoning, whose body was hung on a tree in disgrace, deserved to be removed and buried before sunset. Now, why am I reading that? It's important to understand what's happening here. Jesus has been crucified. It's the day, as we'll find out, it's the day before Passover, Passover, Passover or, uh, Sabbath, pardon me, Sabbath starts in the evening. The Romans, if it were up to them, would leave Jesus' body up as long as they wanted to. However, um, they try to be agreeable with the Jewish sensibilities. The Jews didn't like the idea of dead bodies being left up on their Sabbath. They wanted them to be put in the grave. It's unclean. It's just something they don't like. So the Jews had worked out probably some kind of an arrangement with the Romans where they would not leave their dead bodies hanging for their Sabbath. This is important to understand. Now notice in that note I just read, it says that a family member could come and they could request for the body. If no family member came, they would throw the criminal in a shallow grave and there he would lay. If the Jews didn't protest, and it wasn't a Jewish person, then the Romans would throw them in to the garbage dump, and that's where their body would lay. Now, let's see what happens to Jesus' body. Jesus' body, to this point, has been mishandled. It's been mistreated in every way. Why? Because Jesus is being mishandled so we can be accepted. But now, the wrath of God has been poured out. Atonement has been made. Now we see a shift. Now Jesus' body is going to be honored. It goes from being dishonored to being honored through a particular man. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. Look at verse 42. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. Okay, remember this is written to Gentiles, so Mark's helping us out. Us, you know, ham-eating Gentiles. He says, it's Friday, right before the Sabbath. 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself, notice, looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Typically, crucifixion would take one or two days. That's why um, in in other accounts, we learned they broke the legs of the three, except Jesus, because he was already dead. They broke the legs of the three to hurry up the process so they would die before Passover. They could get them off the cross. So, So Pilate is surprised. He's already dead. It's only been six hours. Now, he's already dead because Jesus chose to be dead. He chose to give up his life because he'd already made atonement for sin. So Pilate, summoning the centurion, that is the chief executioner that we learned about last week, he asked him whether he was already dead or if he was only mostly dead, right? For you Princess Bride fans. 
45. And when he learned from the centurion that he was, in fact, dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been noticed cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So here comes this new character, this character that hasn't been mentioned before. His name is Joseph, very common name. Mark makes sure we know who this Joseph is by adding Joseph of Arimathea. He's someone from this place of Arimathea. And Joseph, by God's providence, wants to care for the body of Jesus. Now, who is this guy? Who is Joseph of Arimathea? Let me tell you, we can learn a lot just from reading the Gospels. First of all, he was wealthy. He was influential, and it might surprise you to learn that he was a member of the Sanhedrin Council. Now you're saying, what's the Sanhedrin Council? It's the council that decided to crucify Jesus or to send him to Pilate to be crucified. How shocking, especially since Mark just said, and he must not have meant what he said when he said it this way, but that that the whole council voted to condemn him. We find in other gospels that there was one man, perhaps maybe two, that said, no, I don't want him to be crucified, and his name was Joseph of Arimathea, a godly man, according to other gospels, a good and righteous man, who, as we learn here, was looking for the kingdom. What do we know about this guy? Okay, other than the fact that he was on the council, we know that he was devout and that he was, listen, he was a disciple of Jesus. How interesting is that? There is a disciple of Jesus on the council of the Sanhedrin. This guy was a Jesus follower. He was a secret Jesus follower, we learn, because he had fear of the Jews. He has fear as to what's going to happen to him if he comes out. So he's a secret Jesus supporter, Jesus follower. He's also a fulfillment of prophecy. If you remember, Isaiah 53, 9 says, and they made his grave with the wicked, that's the two thieves, and with a rich man in his death. Isn't that interesting? So Joseph is part of God's providential plan to care for the body of Jesus. Now, what did Joseph do for Jesus? He did something astounding. First of all, he took a very serious risk in walking into a pagan Gentile governor's house, Pilate, right before Passover, risking defilement. And he went up to Pilate, who was not necessarily the greatest of men, (laughs) we learn in history. He walks up to Pilate and he says, I would like the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph is risking so much in this because not only is he risking Pilate's rejection, he's risking the rejection of the whole council, the Sanhedrin, who didn't want the body of Jesus dealt with in that way. He's taking a serious risk. The other thing that that, uh, Joseph is doing here is he is, for a Jewish man to do this, he is literally, most likely the one to literally pull the body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus off the cross, holding it in his arms and wrapping it in clean new linens. There's an amazing painting I saw the other day. I don't know who did it of this Joseph Arimathea holding the body of Christ. Here's this rich, powerful man who comes out of nowhere pulling this warped, bloody mess of a body off of the cross and wrapping it in pure linen. And it turns out that Joseph had just purchased, recently had purchased a tomb. 
Rich men were buried in the rocks, by the way. Poor men buried in the ground. Rich men would dig a tomb into the rock, and the way it would work is there would be shelves in the rock. They would put the body into the tomb. Usually it would be a family, so multiple members in the family. They'd put the body into the shelf until it would decompose. They'd take all the bones, put them in a box, stick them in the corner. This is a tomb that Joseph had probably purchased for his family, for generations of his family. No one had ever been in here. And he places Jesus' body into this rich man's brand new fresh tomb. Consequentially, it was against Mishnah to put anyone who had been considered a sinner or immoral or crucified or anything like that in the tomb of your family. It was considered defiling. Here Joseph is putting Jesus in his family tomb. Isn't that amazing? Especially considering what we talked about last week, the way that Jesus became fatherless so that we could have a father. He makes Jesus part of his family and honors and respects this man. Now, why is Joseph doing this? You gotta ask that question. Why is Joseph doing this? What is he up to? Well, at the very least, I think Joseph is doing this out of reverence. He knows that this man has been wrongly crucified and he wants to respect his body. But I wonder, and this is conjecture, okay, no emails. This is conjecture. I wonder if Joseph, who was a disciple of Christ, perhaps was listening when Jesus talked about his resurrection, because he did explicitly, didn't he? He said, I'm going to rise again. I'll meet you in Galilee. Could it be that maybe Joseph was actually listening to Jesus? Maybe he doesn't think it's going to be immediately. Maybe he thinks it's going to be in the end. Either way, I think Joseph has this, this incredible faithfulness to care for the body of Jesus. Now, verse 47, we transition back to the women. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. That's important. They noticed where the body went. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So like Joseph, these women are doing what they can do. They're doing what they're able to do. Um, note one woman that's not listed here, by the way. It's Mary, the mother, or Mary, the sister of Martha. Why is she not here? She already anointed the body of Jesus, didn't she? Do you remember that? She broke the alabaster jar. She already anointed Jesus for burial, it said. So she's not present. She's not there. But these women are, are looking to do what they can. They just want to do what they can to love and bless the body of Jesus. Verse 2, very early on the first day, which is what, Sunday? Sunday morning. Very early on the first day, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Now, why have they waited until Sunday to deal with this or to, to, to anoint the body of Jesus? The, the reason is very simple. They were in a rush to get Jesus' body pulled down and put in the tomb before Sabbath. They had to get it done. The women didn't have a chance to get to the body. But they were looking. They were watching to see where he took the body. And the, as soon as they can, first thing Early Sunday morning, they go in order to anoint the body of Christ, to, to deal with some of the smell. These women are taking a huge risk in doing this, by the way. They're taking a huge risk. In verse 3, this is kind of funny. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They haven't figured that out yet, <laughs> but they're going anyways. They got their spices. They're ready to go. They want to anoint the body of Jesus. And as they're going, they think, you know, how are we going to open the door? How are we going to do that? Note that. We'll come back to it. Now, to the skeptic, it's important to understand that these women were not expecting resurrection. You need to know that because some people will say, well, you know, the disciples, this was wishful thinking on their part. 
They wanted the idea of a resurrected Jesus. They weren't even thinking about a resurrection. These, these women are going to, to deal with his body. They don't, even, they don't even have the clue, I think, at this point. Now, verse four, looking up, they saw that, ve- that stone, the stone had been rolled back. Mark notes it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were alarmed. Okay, people are usually alarmed when they see an angel. Okay, they see an angel, and the angel always has to say the same thing. I'm sure angels get tired of having to say the same thing. Do not be alarmed. Why do angels always have to say that? Because angels are alarming. If you saw an angel, you would be alarmed, okay? So, so the angel says what you would expect him to say. Don't be alarmed. He says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So this young angel says, he's not here, he's gone, he's risen, but look where he was. So he points over to the shelf where Jesus' body would have been and what we know what they saw, we know what they saw because the other gospel writers write it down for us. What they saw was they didn't see a, a jumbled mess of blood and, 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 uh, and, and garment. No, they see a very nicely laid out shroud with a face napkin folded in the corner. So what does that tell us? Jesus wasn't stolen, his garments are still there, he didn't leave in a hurry, he left peacefully. It's important that they see this, that they understand this. Now, why did the tomb need to be opened? See Jesus walking through walls, right? He's got an upgraded body, okay? Our upgraded bodies, by the way, I think we'll be able to walk through walls because I think Jesus did that. Okay, he can walk through the tomb. Why does the tomb need to be opened? It needs to be opened for the women so that they can see that the body is missing. Now, there's a lot not here in this gospel that other gospel writers fill in for us, like how did the tomb get opened, what happened to the guards, all of that is in the other gospel accounts. We know that the angel appeared, terrified the guards, they fell over as dead, the tomb opened, the guards ran away, and then the, the scribes and Pharisees bribed them to say that the body was stolen, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's a whole long story. Um, but Mark doesn't give us all those details. He wants us to see one thing, and that one thing is the empty tomb. That's what he wants us to see. Why is the messenger there? Well, the messenger is there because someone needs to tell them what's going on. Someone needs to send them. And by the way, just a side note, how do you think Mary's feeling right now? Mary, the mother of Jesus? She's like, this is vaguely familiar. Something really bizarre happened, and here's an angel telling me some more bizarre stuff's going to happen. You know, I mean, this is old hat for her. She's had this experience before. She's had an angel appear to her when she, when she was pregnant with Jesus. She didn't know what was going on. So this is, she, she goes, I, I would imagine Mary would go, oh yeah, I've done this. We should just listen to him. It'll be, it'll be fine. It'll be good. So what does the angel say? He says, go tell his disciples, note this, and who? Peter. Oh, wasn't that kind? Why do you think He's mentioned. Poor Peter, man. He's probably freaking out right now. I totally blew it. Oh my goodness, three times. Am I even saved? Am I even a disciple? Does Jesus even love me? Am I still the, the, g- gonna be used? Am I still gonna be this, this foundation to the church and part of that? I love that the angel kindly, by God's leading, includes Peter. There's still hope for him. Go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This isn't new. Jesus already told him he was going to meet him in Galilee. 
problem is they didn't listen. Sometimes we need to hear things more than once, right? Now we come to the end. Verse 8. And what a peculiar end it is. <laughs> it's really weird. It's a very strange end. Let me read it for you. Let me see if this is where you would end your gospel if you were writing. Verse 8. They went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. The end. There it is. How weird is that? Now you can see why some guy like 100 years later is like, oh, I got to fix that. You know, like that's, I can't leave that. That's too weird. That's too strange. You know, what happened here? Why is Mark ending the way he is? And that's really the question I want to answer this morning. Why does Mark end the way that he does? What's the point? What are we supposed to do with this ending? As I said in the beginning, how you end something says a lot about what you are trying to achieve in your writing, right? So let's ask another question. Why is Mark writing the gospel of Mark? Why is he writing? Let's go back to verse 1. Let's go back to where we started 11 months ago. The verse, very first verse, the very first line of the book of Mark. And let's see if we can understand why Mark wrote the gospel of Mark. This first line is thought by some to be Mark's summary. It's thought by others to be Mark's title. That actually, this actually was the title of the letter. Either way, it's, it doesn't matter. It says this. Mark says, the beginning, note that, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That is the purpose of the book of Mark. What is the purpose of the book of Mark? First of all, it's a gospel. What does gospel mean? Gospel means proclamation, euangelion, declaration. Something has already happened. This 16 chapters was written by Mark first and foremost to declare what has taken place. Not to give you life advice, not to give you fortune cookie wisdom, to declare the victory. Euangelion was the word used by Rome to declare a new administration, to declare victory that there is a new kingdom advancing into this world. Mark is writing to declare to herald that there is victory in Jesus. I almost start singing that song right now, but I'm not going to do it. Oh, victory in Jesus. Okay, moving on. So he says it's the gospel. The gospel of who? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's the good news about the fact that Jesus is the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. Who is the Son of God? It's the good news that Jesus, and this is what Mark has been trying to show us all along, systematically through Jesus' miracles and Jesus' teaching and Jesus' proclamation that he is not a man, he is not a prophet, he is not merely a priest, he is not just a king, he is the Messiah and he is the Son of God. That's what Mark has been prosecuting over and over and over again. But that's not all he says. What else does he say? The beginning. Do you see that? Mark is what? It's just the beginning. Oh, isn't that cool? It's just the beginning, guys. The beginning of the gospel. So what does that tell us about what Mark's doing here? Well, first of all, it tells us that Mark's not concerned with telling us the whole story. He's just concerned with one very important reality, and that is who is Jesus? What has he done? He'll let other biblical authors record. We have the book of Acts, Luke, 
by the Holy Spirit recorded for us what happened next. Some of the other gospel writers recorded for us what happened when Jesus was walking the earth, resurrected, appearing to the different disciples. Mark's not concerned with that. Mark's point is to prosecute his case that Jesus is the Son of God, and he has done so. He has done so finally, and most importantly, with the empty tomb, which proves implicitly that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the Son of God, the victor of death conqueror of sin, the redeemer. Isn't that good news? It's just the beginning. I love that because that means God is still writing his gospel in a way. He's still writing the implications of the good news of what Jesus has done. We're still living in it. The story's not over. God's still working out the gospel, working out the declaration of the victory of the gospel through us. It's exciting. So Mark ends his gospel um, just like you would expect him to, very briefly and very abruptly, because that's how Mark writes. Trust me, I've spent almost a year with this guy, okay? 30 hours a week in my office hanging out with John Mark. We're buddies now, homies, okay? John Mark loves to abbreviate. He just doesn't like the details. And it doesn't really surprise me that he ends the gospel the way he does, but I think there's another reason that he ends so abruptly. Why does Mark not show the women declaring that Jesus had risen to the disciples? Why does he end it in fear, in trembling? Seems like a failure. Here's what I think. Remember I told you in the beginning that people write things or movies for different reasons? Remember I told you about the documentary that somebody writes for the purpose of the ice caps are melting, sell your diesel, whatever, you know? I think that's what Mark's doing here. I think Mark is leaving us hanging so that we ask the question, Listen, what will you do now that you know that Jesus is the Son of God and he has risen from the grave? What are you going to do with it? What did the women do with it? Well, we don't know. Not from this gospel. Not from this account. But I think the point is we are supposed to ask that question of ourselves. What are you doing with the reality of the resurrection? How is it shaping you? How is it forming you? How is it changing you? What will you do with the empty tomb? And that's what I just want to spend the next 10 minutes on. What should the resurrection be doing in us? Okay? I'm going to give you three things, one word each. The resurrection should cause us to do at least three things. I'll give, all to, all, I'll give them all to you up front. Three things. Watch, wonder, and witness. Watch, wonder, and witness. The resurrection should lead us to at least these three things. Number one, watch. Remember what Jesus said to do to the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane while they were kept falling asleep and he was asking them to pray with him. He said over and over again, watch and pray, watch and pray. So here we have Jesus on the cross and the women, at least, and Joseph and others are doing exactly what they're supposed to do. They're, they're, they're watching, they're watching. Reminds me of that scene in The Incredibles, you know, the little kid, he, he sees Mr. Incredible, like, pick up a car, and then he's like, sets the car down, he's like, what do you want, what are you waiting for? He's like, I don't know, something amazing. You know, like, they're just, they're waiting, they're watching, what's Jesus going to do? What's he going to do? They're, they're doing what they're supposed to do. Um, four times in our passage, the word look is used, it's used of the women, they're looking at a distance. Um, watching the cross, it's used of Joseph. He's looking for the kingdom. It's used of the angel. He says, you are looking for Jesus. And it's used of um, the women who are walking to the tomb. They look up and they see the empty tomb. Now, part of watching 
is working while you wait. And here's one thing I just want to draw that I love about this passage. I love that the disciples of Jesus, some of them here, are not sitting on their hands. They're just doing what they can do with what they have based on what they know. The women, what can we do? Our Lord is dead. He's in the grave. What are we going to do? Let's get some spices. Let's go to the tomb. We saw where they put him. Let's go. Joseph of Arimathea, he couldn't stop the death of Christ, but he does what he can with what he has based on what he knows, okay? And that's just a good rule of thumb in discipleship. You don't always know what's going on, but what are you doing with what you have and with what you know? So part of watching is just, is just doing that. But here's my point, okay? Here's my point. Where you look matters. Can you get that into your head? Where you look matters. Where you look matters. Where are these women looking while they're walking to the tomb? I think it's not by accident that Mark notes for us, don't miss this, Mark notes for us that it's the women are looking down as they're heading up to the tomb and then they look up. You gotta get, your, get yourself into this narrative, okay? These women, they're just demolished. They just watched their, their Lord go through the most gut-wrenching terrible suffering they could possibly imagine. He's, he's in the grave. They don't know what to do, so they, they get together some spices, and they start hiking to Golgotha, or they start hiking to the tomb, okay, the place where Joseph laid him. And as they're going, they're talking. How are we going to get to the tomb? What are we going to do? I, we, don't, we don't have a pry bar. We're not, we're not strong. What are we, how are we going to move the rock? They're, they're, I can just imagine them freaking out about this, right? What are we going to do? Our Lord is dead. We can't even get in to anoint his body because the stupid rock is in front. These are, oh, these are massive circumstances. How can we overcome these? They're looking down. They're watching their feet. They're trying not to trip. They're carrying all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, one of them looks up and everything changes. What changed? They looked up. What did they see? While they're trying to figure out how to open the stone... Not only is the stone already opened, the dead body they were going into anoint is risen. Do you see the difference? Do you see what happens when we look up? When we look at the resurrection, it should cause us to change everything we think about the world, about life, about our world, about our life, about what we do. So what we do is we get so lost in our details, don't we? We're head down. We're thinking about, I got to get here. I got to get there. I got to do this. I got to do that. I got to have this conversation. I'm late for this. I'm late for that. How am I going to get through this? Lord, help me with the details. We're, we're thinking about anointing the body. We're thinking about how, how to open the door. And then we look up and we go, oh yeah. Jesus conquered death and is now at the right hand of the Father. That changes everything. Why am I freaking out about these little things? Why am I worried about opening the stone? He climbed out of the grave. Are you following me? What we do is we look down. And when we look down, we forget what Jesus has done. The resurrection should give Christians a great boldness because if Jesus conquered the grave, what else is he going to do? What else has he done? What else is he doing? You ever think about that? Something amazing, I would think, right? He's going to do amazing things. He has done amazing things things. Our problems seem small until we look at the, the grave. Now, notice what the women do not do when they get to the grave. They don't go, oh, dang it, we prepared all these spices. Where are we going to put them now? Oh, so like Jesus to make me waste spices. No. What do they do? 
they don't care about the spices. The spices were a means to an end. The, sp- the spices were, were, were um, because they had to deal with this idea of a dead Messiah. He's risen, cares about the spices. Flip over really quickly. There's a, parent, uh, a parenthetical to this in John 4.28. John 4.28, there's a really similar kind of a thing happens here. You know the story, you're familiar with it. Jesus is ministering to this woman, this Samaritan woman. He uh, basically zings her with uh, knowing exactly what's going on in her life. Speaks truth to her. She's just blown away. Um, Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They're all just kind of stunned. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? What did she leave there? Her water jar. I love it. My point here is that when you experience the resurrection, your entire economy changes. Your entire value system changes. What, you, what seemed so important to you in the moment prior all of a sudden becomes very unimportant. This Samaritan woman, all she was thinking about that day was getting water. Next thing you know, she doesn't care about, she's going to be thinking about her jar. These women, everything changes with Jesus getting out of the grave. Everything changes with the resurrection. It changes everything. That's why Paul said, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we what? We wasted our lives because the resurrection means that we waste our lives, according to the world. Resurrection changes everything. It changes how I think, how I talk, what I do, what I spend my life on. If Jesus rose from the grave, then he gets all of me. If he didn't, let's go do something else, (laughs) right? That's why Paul said, also in Philippians, he said, I count it all rubbish, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. That's a man who encountered the resurrection. Paul encountered the resurrected Christ on the road. Remember? He, he, he encountered the resurrected Christ. Our job is to watch. It is to keep our eyes on the resurrection reality and to, to, to filter everything through that. If Jesus can do that, what else can he do? Number two, not only watch, number two, wonder. Wonder. The way Mark ends here sounds like terror, but if you look at the words more closely, you realize these women are not terrified. These women are full of wonder. Look at the words. Verse 8, they went out, fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment seized them. Another gospel says they went out with fear and great joy. (laughs) What a combination of things. These guys are overcome by wonder. They're seized by wonder. They're stunned by what has happened. You know, there's a reason that critical scholars and and, um, people that want to undo God's word attack the resurrection. The resurrection has under a barrage of attack in the academic world. There's been so many theories to try to disprove the resurrection and, and, and show how this didn't really happen. Why do they attack the resurrection so harshly? Why do they attack it? Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead... We really don't have anything to stand on. If Jesus did raise from the dead, then everything that he said and everything that he said was true is true. And we're now accountable for it, right? The resurrection is very counterintuitive. And and if it ever feels not counterintuitive, it's because you've watered it down. It's because you've watered it down. See, Jesus didn't just resuscitate. That's, that's the resurrection that happened to Lazarus. Remember, he, God brought him back from the dead. Now, this is a very different, very much more real thing. Uh, Jesus didn't just come back from the dead. Jesus was regenerated. He was recreated into a new body. That's incredible. 
one that could, could appear, one that was, was somehow connected to the spiritual and material realms in a way we can't even understand, yet still ate food. I mean, Jesus resurrected, and it changes everything. It changes everything. Listen to this. A carnal Christian is a Christian uncaptivated by the resurrection. If the resurrection has not led you to wonder, then it will not transform you. I truly believe the level to which you believe in the power of the resurrection is the level to which you give your life over fully to Christ. If he really rose from the dead, then he gets all of me, (laughs) right? He gets all of me. Wonder is a powerful thing. Have you lost your wonder of the resurrection? Has it become old hat to you? Some of you guys that grew up in the church, you're just like, yeah, resurrection, we talk about every Easter. Yeah, I get it. You gotta let it affect you. You gotta let it think, you gotta think about it. And number three, the third thing resurrection should cause us to do is witness. Not only watch, not only wonder, but witness. You know, it's not implicit in this text what we're supposed to do with the resurrection. It's explicit. Look at it. In verse eight, or verse seven, pardon me, the angel says, go tell. Go tell. Go tell his disciples. The first thing we're supposed to do when we encounter the resurrection is witness. We're supposed to share it. We're supposed to declare it. That is our job as Christians to be witnesses, okay? And the question I think Mark wants us to interact with here as he ends his gospel is, will you share the witness of the resurrection? Will you tell others? Or will you, like the women seemingly here, went away afraid and said nothing? Now, there's one more thing I need to deal with here because it's confusing, and that is that Mark says the women go away and don't tell anybody. But if you've read the other gospels, we know that's not true. They did go tell right away, it seems like. So what's Mark talking about here? What's the deal? Let me see if I can answer that. Something happened between the point Mark leaves us at right here, terrified, confused, unsure what to do. What are the disciples going to think? They're going to think we're crazy. Run away! Go! Um, They're going to think we're crazy? Yeah. Good job, Dad. Just meet him on the other side. That's probably smart. Um, He, he, you know... This is great. Um, the, you know, you're going to think we're crazy. What, what, what are we going to do? Maybe we should just keep our mouths shut. Maybe we should just not say anything. Well, something happens between that time and when they share. Look at it really quick. Matthew 28, verse 5. We'll end here. Matthew 28, verse 5. This is Matthew's account of the resurrection. Start in verse 3. His appearance was like lightning. This is the, uh, the angel of the Lord. Uh, actually, start in verse 2. Behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Now, Come, see the place where we lay. Mark included all this in his gospel. Verse 7. Then, so quickly, uh, pardon me, uh, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear. That's where Mark ends. That's where Mark ends. They departed with fear. But Matthew continues. And great joy and ran to tell his disciples and behold Jesus met them and said greetings here's what I think it was the meeting of Jesus that I think brought these guys to the point of confidence 
It was the meeting of Jesus. I think this was the catalyst. I think this is what changed them. They went, what do we do with this? And then Jesus, bam, appears to these guys, and now they feel the confidence. Here's my very simple point. There is a difference between witnessing and being a witness. I think one of the reasons that we're terrified to share the gospel with people is because we think of it as, I need to go witness. I need to go witness as though it's something I need to do. No, listen, this is important. It's something you are. You are a witness. You are a witness. If you're trying to witness, you'll probably be bad at it. If you are a witness, you'll be very good at it intrinsically. What's the difference, Sam? The difference is witnessing is something I go do. Being a witness is something I am. It's something I've experienced. It's something that oozes out of me. It's something that leaks out of every crack and every part of my life that I have encountered the resurrected Lord and I have to share it because I am a witness. We are called to be witnesses. Are you with me? How do we be witnesses? How do we become witnesses? We encounter the resurrected Lord. How do we encounter the resurrected Lord? Through the Spirit of God, through His Word, He is present and He is working. We need to encounter the resurrection. I have a theory. I think one of the biggest reasons for the unengaged, lukewarm, spectator evangelicalism that we see in the West right now is that we have minimized the resurrection into something that is no longer exciting and it's made Christianity very dull. We've made Christianity all about um, something that it, yes, is about, but it's not just about, and that is that our sins are forgiven, Jesus loves us, great. The resurrection is what makes Christianity so stinking exciting. Jesus, re, he, he literally became the firstborn of a new creation. And now we are going to spend eternity, those that believe in Jesus, we're gonna spend eternity in a new heavens and a new earth that is way cooler than this one and new bodies that are physically able to do things. Last week, me and some guys from the church went backpacking. It was awesome. We're going to do that kind of stuff. And we're looking around like, isn't creation great? God's not done with creation. He didn't die on the cross so we can go float on a cloud and a little diaper and a harp. No, thank you. He didn't just die on the cross. He died on the cross and he came out of the grave, was regenerated as a new template, a new prototype for a new humanity, a new creation, so that we will spend eternity in the best, most amazing physical and spiritual place you can imagine. And there'll be adventure and work and exploration and relationship and everything that God made that was good and ruined by sin will be undone in the resurrection. Isn't that exciting? The gospel is more than just, you are no longer going to hell. Great, that's good news. It's more than that. Not only are you not going to hell, believer, you are going into a new heavens and a new earth which's gonna blow your socks off. Maybe you won't even have to wear socks because there'll be no thorns and thistles. <laughs> that's free, I wasn't in my notes. God is good, amen. Father, we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for it because we know it changed everything. Just like the cross changed everything. Thank you for this gospel, this beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that we have spent the last year looking at. We thank you for how it has led us and shaped our thinking to think rightly about you, Jesus, that you are the author of life, or that you are so much more than just a man, so much more than just God. You were the God-man. You were the God who stepped into creation and redeemed it and saved us from the inside out. And you are now leading us into this new eternal reality. We can't wait. We are so thankful and excited. Thank you for the book of Mark, Lord. As you lead and guide us into the next season as a church, would you continue to speak to us? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
Amen. I am so sorry, guys. We had time. we were going to do circles, and I took up all the time telling stupid jokes. So, um, love you guys. Hope you guys have a great day. We'll we'll get in. Uh, we will be here gathering next week, same time, 10 a.m. Kids will be with us in the service. God bless you guys. Have a great day. I was